Welcome to episode 26 in Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church and producer of this series. Revisions to this series are part of the AIC's continuing celebration of the start of its second decade on the web. If you've not already viewed episode 2, my primer on numerology, I urge you to do so since understanding how John used numerology is critical to understanding Revelation and this series. In this episode, the focus is on chapter 20, Satan Bound a Thousand Years. The second of two chapters in Act 4 of the Divine Drama that forms the second half of Revelation and which I discussed in episode 17. In some translations, the chapter is labeled the Millennial Age. St. John's point of view is now earth looking to heaven, and all the events he describes take place on earth. The illustration, John dictating Revelation, is a 15th century Italian fresco in the Greek style at Mount Athos, Greece. I have divided the reading of chapter 20 into four parts. The first reading is verses 1 through 3. The illustration for many of the slides in this episode are a detail of binding and loosing of the beast from the Bamberg Apocalypse, an early 11th century illumination manuscript of Revelation used in full size and detail on page 164 of the AIC bookstore publication Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation. And Satan Bound a Thousand Years, an Illumination from the 11th Century Apocalypse Manuscript, the San Saver Beatus. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. As I noted in the discussion of chapter 19, discussed in episodes 24 and 25, as the book nears its climactic end, St. John reintroduces many themes, images, and phrases from earlier chapters. He does so again in chapter 20 when in verse 1 he sees an angel descending from heaven bearing the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit, or the resting place of the dead, has several names in Scripture. It was referred to in Revelation 19, verse 15, discussed in episode 25 in the context of the lake of fire. The great chain in Revelation 20, verse 1, is a new detail, and its function is described in verse 3. The Old Testament names for the bottomless pit are, in Hebrew, Sheol, 
And for Greek-speaking Hebrews, the abyss or abyssos. In the New Testament, the same place was known to the Greeks as Hades, the name by which Jesus mentioned it in Revelation 1.18, which I discussed in episode 4. In Revelation 5.3, discussed in episode 8, it was referred to as under the earth. In Revelation 9, verses 1 and 2, discussed in episode 14, St. John referred to the fifth angel as having the key to the bottomless pit. In Revelation 9.11, discussed in episode 14, St. John mentions the name of the king who ruled over the bottomless pit. In Hebrew, Abaddon, or in Greek, Apollyon. Unlike the Christian understanding of the place of the dead, in the Hebrew understanding, there was no association of judgment with the pit or bottomless pit, since all the dead, whether righteous or unrighteous, resided there. On this point, Psalm 88, verses 3 through 5 and 10 through 11 is instructive. The emphasis on the words is mine. I am counted as one of them that go down into the pit, and I am even as a man that hath no strength, cast off among the dead like unto them that are slain and lie in the grave, who are out of remembrance and are cut away from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in a place of darkness and in the deep. Dost thou show wonders among the dead? Or shall the dead rise up again and praise thee? Shall thy loving kindness be showed in the grave? Or thy faithfulness in destruction? In Christian theology, it is only after the resurrection that the question asked in verse 11 Shall thy loving kindness be showed in the grave is finally answered. In Revelation 1.18, discussed in episode 4, Jesus referred to himself as holding the keys to Hades and death. In Revelation 6.8, discussed in episode 11, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is known as death. The complex relationship between the bottomless pit and the combination of Hades and death will be developed more fully by St. John in chapter 21. In the event that viewers might not have recalled St. John's connection of Satan and the beast in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 and discussed in episode 17, St. John makes the point again leaving no doubt about to whom he has been referring, the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. These two uses in Revelation 12.9 and in Revelation 20 verse 2b mark the beginning of the strong Christian association of Satan with the serpent in the creation account. The Old Testament precedent is the description of Satan as the one who is, quote, more cunning than the beasts of the field in Exodus 3, verse 1, 
and who tempted Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and who for their disobedience were expelled from paradise in Exodus 3, verses 1 to 23. His name in Hebrew is Hasatan. In the New Testament, his name, devil, is derived from the Greek diabolos, which means slanderer, and before that, from a Chaldean word with the same meaning. I discussed the Christian understanding of Satan and his various names in episode 17 regarding Revelation chapter 12. For more on Satan in both the Old and New Testament understandings, see the Satan entry on pages 198 to 202 in Layman's Lexicon. In verse 2b and 3, he is bound for a thousand years and cast into the bottomless pit. As St. John pointed out in Revelation 9 verse 11, discussed in episode 14, the bottomless pit is where he reigns as king. He is shut up and sealed there until the end of his term. In the rest of verse 3, the function of the great chain is revealed. Satan is shut or sealed in the pit and cannot, quote, deceive the nations, unquote, until the term is up and he is released for a little while. Few verses in Scripture have caused as much controversy as Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. In episode 2, my primer on numerology, I explain the idealist interpretation that the word thousand is not a number, as in 1,000 years on a calendar, but a metaphor for an indefinite but long period of time. A brief primer on the origin of the words may be helpful. The Hebrew Old Testament word translated as thousand means, quote, a great many, unquote. In the Western Church, based on St. Jerome's Vulgate Bible, a late 4th century translation from the original Greek into Latin and widely used in the Roman Catholic Church, the word millennium is based on the Latin word for a thousand. Those who interpret the meaning literally are called millennialists. Those who support the idealist view are called amillennialists. In the Eastern Church tradition, millennialism is known as kiliasms, based upon the Greek word for a thousand. The idealist view is not a new idea. It is based upon several early church decisions which are not widely understood in the popular media and especially among Protestants. A brief lesson in early church history may be helpful. In 230 AD, the leaders of the Eastern Church, which was at that time the majority of Christianity, addressed the meaning of thousand at the Synod of Iconium. The priests, bishop, and archbishop who were present at the synod condemned Kiliasm, or millennialism, as a heresy not based in Scripture. 
the Second Ecumenical Council, which met at Constantinople in 381 AD, the council followed up by amending the original Nicene Creed drawn up at the First Ecumenical Council in 325 AD. Not only did the Second Council add clarification on the Holy Spirit, but also at the end of the second full paragraph, which discusses Jesus Christ and the kingdom of the Father, it added a new phrase, whose kingdom shall have no end. This effectively made the decision of the Synod of Iconium condemning millennialism or chiliasm part of the principal creed of the Christian faith even though its meaning is rarely explained in that way in the modern church. Not much more than a century later, St. Augustine of Hippo, pronounced Augustine by many English scholars and clergy, but more widely in the American vernacular as Augustine, like the name of the city in Florida, published his major work, The City of God. He is called, by the way, of Hippo, to distinguish him from the first Archbishop of Canterbury, who took office around 596 A.D. and had the same name. He was the star pupil of St. Ambrose of Milan, whose prayer style followed more closely the traditions of the Eastern Church than that of many other Roman Catholic bishops. With the City of God, he became the first major thinker in the Western Church to reject millennialism. His opinion became the basis for the Roman Catholic Catechism around the 15th century. In the early 21st century, Roman Catholic Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, head of the Roman Church's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and yes, this is the same person who took the name Benedict XVI when he was elected Pope in April 2005 AD, accepted the Eastern Church view in May 2000 in his doctrinal letter, The Message of Fatima. He reaffirmed the Roman Church's position that millennialism is inconsistent with Christian theology and scripture. In the idealist view, based on the writings of Augustine and many of the Eastern Fathers, a more accurate name for the period which the millennialists called the Millennial Age is the Church Age. The Church Age is the period which has existed since Jesus' resurrection and still exists and will exist in all the time to come until the Second Coming. In the idealist view, the church and the apostles have been and remain free to spread the gospel message to the whole world. It is further understood that during the church age that the exact time of the second coming should always be considered imminent. That is, Christians should be ready for it at all times and that they should not spend time trying to do the impossible and calculate the timing. The loosing of Satan for a little while at the end of the age in verse 3b, or in the King James Version, a little season, is translated from the Greek word mikron, 
also used in Revelation 6.11 and discussed in episode 9 concerning the sixth seal. I noted then that the same phrase was used by Jesus in St. John's Gospel in John 16.16, 16, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. A little while means a small amount of time measured on the scale of God's time with its duration being whenever he wills to end it. Therefore, the period of time when Satan, according to Revelation 20, verse 3b, shall be released will happen before the general judgment. The timing of it will be up to God and not Satan. The details of this period are addressed in Revelation 20, verse 7 and 8 in the third set of readings. In verse 2, the statement that Satan is bound means that he cannot stop the spread of the church and the gospel. However, it does not mean that Satan is without powers or that he is not present on earth. God's powers are stronger and indeed are limitless, which is the full implied meaning of the title Kyrios Theosopantocrator, or Lord God Almighty, which St. John used several times earlier in Revelation, in 1.8, discussed in episode 3, in 4.8, discussed in episode 9, in 11.17, in episode 16, 15.3, and 16.7 and 14, discussed in episode 21, Revelation 19.6 and 15 in episode 24 and 25, and will be used again in Revelation 21, verse 22, in episode 27. The New Testament precedent is this, from Luke 10, verses 17 to 20. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Other New Testament precedents for the idealist view of Revelation are found in St. John's Gospel and in two epistles of St. Paul. In St. John's report of Jesus predicting his own death upon the cross and in so doing explaining its purpose, Jesus says in John 12, verses 31 and 32, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. St. Paul warned in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, that Satan can still tempt individuals and that the faithful must ready themselves with spiritual armor. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The second New Testament precedent is Colossians 2.15, in which St. Paul observed how Jesus' death on the cross defeated the powers allied with Satan. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. For more on the early Christian understanding of angels and angelic forces or the powers of heaven, see the Angels and Archangels entry on pages 10 through 13 in Layman's Lexicon. The second of four readings in this chapter are 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. In verse 4, a vision of thrones and judgment, we hear St. John's account of the triumph of those who had suffered for Christ and the church, including the gruesome fate of being beheaded, and who defied the beast by refusing to worship him, and who had never worn his image and mark on their foreheads or hands, which refers to the manner of marking or sealing the followers of the beast in Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, discussed in episode 19, and Revelation 14, verses 9, 10, and 11, discussed in episode 20. The phrases lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years and first resurrection in verse 4b refers to the reward for the faithful who died during the church age, the years between Jesus' resurrection, which is the literal first resurrection, and his second coming and the general judgment, when the bodies and souls of the faithful will be reunited. These are who was meant in the beatitude pronounced by the voice from heaven in Revelation 14, verse 13, discussed in episode 20, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In verse 6, St. John himself proclaims the fifth beatitude in Revelation. Blessed is he who has part in the first resurrection. These are promised a special reward. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years, again referring to the church age. The second death, which has no power over them, in verse 6, is not death in the human, earthly sense. The same phrase is used by Jesus in Revelation 2, verse 11, the letter to the church at Smyrna, and again in Revelation 20, verse 11. For Christians, that form of death is no longer relevant. The Eastern Church's Easter song, based on Hosea 13, verse 14, 
declares, O death, where is thy sting? This passage refers to the eternal judgment of the unrighteous dead at the general judgment which will follow the second coming. It was also quoted by St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. The status of the rest of the dead, referred to in verse 5, must await the end of the church age. In the Anglican tradition, a similar declaration, based upon Romans 6, 9, is found in the prayer book's substitute verse for the Venite in morning prayer at Easter. Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth to God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This program is continued in part two of episode 26.